Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for listening to Sweet Tea and TV. This is Nikki. And Selena. From the future. Coming back in time from season five of our show to thank you for joining us and to give you a brief note before you jump in. As we're recording this, we're in 2023. We started this podcast in 2021, so we've had a little more experience since we started. In particular, when we think about the first season, we'll never not think about the audio quality. Boy, we struggled. That's right. At times we were recording in different places. Sometimes our recording service would just shut down or just not work the same way it did the week before. It was a real journey. All that to say, it might not be the best listen in places. So if this is your first time listening, we want you to know the audio quality gets so much better in season two as we learn more and made some improvements. And we hope you'll stay with us long enough to find that out. Now, let's get into it. Selena. Oh, hello there, Nikki. Fancy meeting you here. So fancy, despite the fact that we scheduled a time. Right, right, right. Are you ready to dig into this special two-parter? This oh, I'm, I'm ready. All right. Well, I wanted to kick us off this week um, by sharing what I think is kind of a critical piece of the show's history. Um, I mentioned last week that the show was actually put on hiatus after New Year's Days aired which as we'll all remember, was not my favorite episode. Mm-hmm. I'll just give a tiny history lesson before we dive into this week's episode. Okay. Let's hear it. Okay. Um, so we mentioned way back, probably in episode one, that the show premiered originally on a Monday night, which um, was a great night for comedies. And it did pretty well. Um, it was consistently in the top 20 or 30 shows on TV, which is great, right? Mm-hmm. Um but it eventually found its way to Thursday night on CBS, um, and it aired competing against Night Court. Did you ever watch Night Court? I did. I love Night Court. So did everyone else, and that was the problem. Oh, oops. It did not do well. Uh, NBC is historically known for its Thursday night comedy block. It's just formidable. Hardly anyone can compete with it. Think about Friends. That was a Thursday mm-hmm. night show. Um, so... A lot of places that I was researching called this really an inexplicable move. There was no clear reason why they moved Designing Women. But I found a Washington Post article that quoted LBT as actually saying that network execs thought it would have been good competition for Night Court, specifically because Designing Women followed Knott's Landing. So I think their logic was a lot of women watched Knott's Landing, so they were going to follow along after Knott's Landing and watch Designing Women. And so they were going to carry that women block in fight night court the problem was Mm. lbt says that the same women who were watching knots landing were not the same women that were watching designing women and it turns out she was right um the network execs were wrong lbt was right um and the shift ended up being kind of a death sentence for the show um after just four episodes in that slot and 11 episodes total in that first season Um, The show was shelved on January 1st, 1987, after the ratings had declined dramatically. So it wasn't technically canceled. It was, quote unquote, put on hiatus, Mm. which is code for about to be canceled. Right. So, like, I mean, it was they saw the rating for New Year's Days and they were like, I think so. 
I think okay. so. It might have been a culmination um, mm-hmm. of because, like I said, I think it was four episodes in that slot. So I think they were kind of watching the ratings dip, and they were just sort of like, "This is not working out." Um, and it didn't. It wasn't like, a, "Oh, we made a bad move." Just right. oh, this this isn't working. This show, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so according to a people magazine article that I found on designingwomenonline.com, and I'll include that link in the show notes, Dixie Carter said, quote, we knew we were doomed, but what made it so painful, but was that this was one show that didn't deserve to go down the tubes. So the, Mm. the designing women themselves were not happy about this. Um, so I'll never be able to give all the right people, all the credit that they're due for bringing the show back, because I think some of those things just get lost to time. Um, but one article I found said that, quote, two of the show's most ardent fans armed with computerized mailing lists of fans across the country joined. Oh, forces, high tech. I know. Joined forces with a watchdog organization called Viewers for Quality Television to generate a letter writing campaign to save the show. A letter writing campaign. That's wild. Mm. Um, Washington, Washington Post seemed to indicate that one of the two people... Um, one of those two people that was that I just mentioned uh, was actually involved with viewers for quality TV. So that organization and that LBT was the one to ask for their help. So she uh, kind of said, put in a call and said, like, you guys have helped save shows before. Can you help us out? Um, as a result of the work, 50,000 fans sent letters to CBS, uh, which was apparently a significant number. Uh, that same Washington Post article I found referred to it as what may be the biggest letter writing campaign in television history. Keeping in mind that was in 1987, but at the time it was the biggest. After that, it was a pretty quick about face. I didn't write the dates down, but I think one article I read said it was put on hiatus January 1st. They changed their mind by like January 8th. So it was a quick turnaround. Wow. Yeah. Um, but it returned to the air, retooled as a Sunday show on February 1st with this two-part special that we're going to talk about today. Um, The Sunday night time slot was good for it because it would air after 60 minutes, which was popular. And then the show would encounter minimal resistance on other networks because Mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily a huge comedy night. Not not a lot of competition directly. There you Mm -hmm. go. Mm -hmm. Okay. So going into this episode, I just wanted to kind of set the stage that sort of um, where we were in television history, in designing women history, the, this two-part episode was LBT and the women's first foray back into TV following that very brief but really important hiatus. Um, two more quick things I wanted to mention background-wise, um, which we may get into. It may be in your notes somewhere. It may be in mine. Um, but I did want to mention that the day before Thanksgiving 1986, so Thanksgiving just before this aired, uh, LBT's mom died, unfortunately. Um, and then the day before Christmas, uh, her husband, Harry Thomason's mother, died of breast cancer, in fact. Okay. So mentally, that's where she was in writing these episodes. Um, so with that, I will kind of leave it there. I just wanted to set the stage that we had a very important moment in the show's history. Obviously, very important family moment for the Thomasons. Um, and so... Starting with that, do you want to take us into the episode description? Yeah, happy to do so. And thanks for, as you said, uh, setting the stage. I think that's really important. And we had said a long time ago that, uh, or what what will feel like a long time ago to you and I, that we wanted to kind of bring in these outside influencing stories that affected different things. And um, so very, uh, very interesting and really quite sad to hear that 
um, those, those are two really big losses. Mm-hmm. So I think the big thing again is that we are going to be covering episodes 12 and 13 tonight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, today, whatever time it is in your world, <laughs> when are you listening, listening, make it your time. <laughs> um, but actually I just wanted to let you know, I did not grab the Hulu descriptions. I grabbed the, um, IMDB descriptions. Oh, I Mixed don't quite. Yeah, I don't quite remember now, but for whatever reason, I just didn't think that the episode descriptions were, they weren't cutting it. Ah. Um, So I went and I grabbed these instead. So it's a little bit of a change up. Um, So Mary Jo, this is for episode 12 or what we'll be kind of thinking of as part one. Um, Mary Jo and JD's romantic evening is interrupted when her ex-husband, Ted, brings home the children on a flimsy excuse. Meanwhile... Anthony is required to attend a $5,000 poker game after a run-in with a corrupt businessman, and Charlene looks for a new doctor when her old one says to wait and see after finding a lump in her breast. So that's episode 12. Mm -hmm. The next episode, episode 13, or what we'll probably be referring to as part two, is J.D. brings his ex-wife and Mary Jo's ex-husband Ted together to lay down some ground rules. Charlene goes in for a biopsy while Julia confronts her old doctor. Anthony tries to hide from two of Mr. BB's bodyguards. Uh, the air date for this is February 1st, 1987. Again, that's really quick turnaround, like you said, from the um, show getting shelved. Mm-hmm. And then the director was Barnett Kelman. I just wanted to do a couple of his credits here, which was Murphy Brown, a favorite of mine. Uh, the Middle, which I know that you like a lot. So yeah, I wanted to make sure you heard about that. And then I've got a Dolly connection for you. Um, yeah, he directed um, Straight Talk in 1992. Oh, Have you ever seen that movie before? I have not. It's, it's really cute. So, well, it's my list. Yeah, so check that out. And then the writer on this one is LBT. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to you, Nikki, and let, let's get into this bad boy because we got it. It's a doozy. It is a doozy. So we're going to do things a little differently this time. I think typically we do, we cover each episode by act or we sort of split it up into these kind of three almost distinct parts. But this time we're actually, we're covering both the episodes together because they premiered together. Uh, they just flow together, obviously, as one cohesive story. So instead, we're going to break it down by three major plot lines instead of by act. So full credit to Selena for pulling out these three major plot lines. We've got Anthony's very expensive and very mandatory poker game. Um, we've got JD and Mary Jo's struggle with their exes. And then we have Charlene's breast cancer scare. So we're going to cover each one of those and kind of so that we have a chance to dig into some of the finer details. So we'll jump into kind of what we're calling theme one, which is Charlene's breast cancer scare. Um, And I'll I'll kind of cover it by part one, episode part one, which is episode 12, and then part two, which is episode 13. I hope my numbers are right. Perfect. Excellent. Um, So focusing in on Charlene's plot line, the episode opens actually with Charlene um, and she has gotten tickets to Jerry Lee Lewis. Woo! We've heard a few times throughout the show how much she loves this man. I've heard more about Jerry Lee Lewis in this show than maybe anyone else. It's so. It's been a lot, and it sounds like she's actually never made it to see... Well, she's made it to see him. He's never made it to perform for her. So she's very excited. 
and this is a high note, right? That was sort of my impression yeah. for this whole is like we're starting it on like we're up here. You can't see me unless you're Nikki, but up here is above my head. And it's like, whoa. Yeah. So it starts on this high note, but then it immediately goes to a low note when Mary Jo comes in looking really defeated. Right. So she, yeah. she comes in. And the reason this is relevant to the theme of Charlene is that Charlene is supporting Mary Jo because um, Charlene's I mean, Mary Jo's ex-husband, Ted, um, has been making things challenging with the kids. Um, he's threatened to, you know, position her as an unfit mother. And Charlene sort of swoops in as Mary Jo's best friend and supporter and says, like, mm -hmm. that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Right. The sweetest thing she said, you name me another mother willing to shellac a dinosaur outfit so the scales look wet. We saw that dinosaur outfit. Oh, my God. You're right. Mm-hmm. In the slumber party. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was an alligator. Maybe that's why I didn't put that together. Well, there you go. I, I think it was a dinosaur. It was a reptile. That's fine. I, I'm going with you. I'm going with yeah. you. Um, Thank you. So it's sort of you have this high note of Charlene um, getting her once in a lifetime tickets. Um, she's supporting Mary Jo. So it's sort of kind of it, it's showing you all the things you love about Charlene. Right. Oh, I love that perspective. That's great. Yeah, mm -hmm. She's excited about life. She loves her friends. Um, she and Suzanne have a really funny interaction here um, about her kind of being the office manager uh, and taking care of the the um, date book. Um, so you get that sort of interaction a little bit. I do want to put in a plug to add uh, a mention of Suzanne's alimony checks to our ultimate bingo card whenever that comes about. Right. That's a good one. There's a very funny joke in here about how Charlene had them organized by length of marriage. Um, yeah, that was funny. And then, you know, we get this really funny breakdown of everything Charlene is wondering about while they're having lunch, which, as I understand it, will be your extra sugar this week. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Stick around for extra sugar where we will answer all of Charlene's questions. <laughs> Except for what Suzanne's like in bed. I can't answer that. So that Google wouldn't help me. I tried. Oh, well, you're brave. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I didn't try. So you get all of these great things that are happening. And the next little bit of information we get, Charlene comes in with some really great news. The great news is she doesn't have cancer. Hmm. But really, it's just that her doctor told her not to worry about whether or not she has cancer. It wasn't actually that she doesn't have cancer. Yeah, it, it, but it just kind of building on what you were saying about the kind of character that Charlene is, the kind of person that she is, is she is a, a positive person. And I think I think, you know, I think that's the space that she wants to live in. So I, I definitely think it matches up with her character not to question authority. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, she very much trusts this doctor. Fortunately, her friends aren't so trusting. Uh, and Julia mm -mm. is not going to take that lying down. She says no. Yeah, I struggle with this a little bit because I do agree with Julia. And I'm glad that she twisted her arm. But I do think she twisted her arm. Mm -hmm. Like it was like Julia is kind of a little bit of a bully. Yeah. But this was I think there's sometimes where you need a bully in your life. Mm -hmm. And this was a time when a bully is needed. And actually, let's use a different word. Maybe we call Julia the hero of Charlene's segment. I think that's fair. I think that's a really fair categorization. Can we talk a little bit about 
the phone call that Charlene makes. Yeah. So she goes to call her doctor and I didn't, I don't think I wrote his name down. I can't remember. Dr. Mitchell. You got it. So she goes to call Dr. Mitchell. Um, and gosh, I gotta tell you, she's waiting to get Dr. Mitchell on the phone and she picks up the envelope and wags it and says, Jerry Lee Lewis tickets. And the other ladies faces in that moment, that look of like, there's Charlene. That's the person we love. That broke my heart a little bit, to be honest. Right. But like, also kind of like you could see that fear Mm -hmm. on them. Right. That wasn't quite there for her yet. The sunshine of our lives. That's like always here. And Mm -hmm. she's facing this. I don't know. It's not, maybe, maybe it was meant to be that point yet. I don't know. I'm really good at taking the slightly emotional and making them very emotional. Anyway, that got me, but she's waiting for the doctor to pick up the phone. And when he does, she tells him, you know, just to ease my mind, could you recommend someone to give me a second opinion, which I thought maybe the world was different in 1987. I would never call my doctor to get a recommendation. No, that felt strange. I have something here that says, I feel like maybe she could have just gotten a second opinion. Right. Like you don't need permission, but it's Charlene and maybe she feels right. like she does. But I think it's, it's hard. I've only seen the episode 12 times, but, um, but it has been a little bit, but I, I feel like maybe Julia pushed her to get on the phone with Dr. Mitchell too. Mm. Um, but I do feel like you get the sense that, uh, I think Charlene felt she owed this to him too. Um, and even though it's Atlanta, it is Atlanta in 87. And I do think it's, Atlanta's much smaller. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I do think there is still sort of that um, family doctor, Mm -hmm. you know, my doctor doesn't know my name. Right. Right. You know, but this is a different, this is a different time and this is a different scenario. But I I think it's fair to say, even though we only hear at first her side of the call, it doesn't go well. Right. No, it doesn't go well. Charlene is really upset because he is, he's mad at her. He's mad and tells her, well, if you don't have faith in me, you need to find another provider. And she takes that personally because she, I think in part, because she doesn't like hurting people in part because this person that she trusted and respected suddenly feels like he doesn't respect her. So it does, it doesn't go well. She doesn't feel good about it. I think another piece of information that we get in this kind of exchange with Julia and Charlene is that um, Julia and Suzanne have a friend who waited too long to get Mm -hmm. taken care of. Um, And I think that piece becomes relevant later on. So I want to make sure to mention that because it's a breadcrumb that I think I missed the first time I watched it. Right. Well, I don't know that you missed it the first time you watched it, but I hear you. And it definitely is a breadcrumb. And I think one thing that also I, you know, Charlene, when she does get off the phone, she was like, I insulted him when she said that the way she said that, that was the thing that felt like it stabbed me because I really felt that emotional note in her voice. Um, And also it just feels like there's some gender dynamics at play. I think maybe we can get into that more a little bit later in this story, in this particular storyline. But I already felt like that. If she sounded like a chided child to me, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. It was awful. Um, Yeah. So they have that interaction and, um, then she's gone to get her second opinion. She goes to get her Mm -hmm. second opinion and she comes back and this was played. So like, it's no, it's not mysterious. I got teary eyed here. Um, it was played so well. She comes back and she goes, you got teary eyed too. 
I did. Did you? First time. Oh. First time in this show. Yeah. Because we've just fallen in love with this character. She comes back and says, well, I hope you're all happy. I got my second opinion. And my eye kept being drawn to Mary Jo. The camera flips to Mary Jo. And she goes from a seated to a standing position. And you can tell in that moment with that body language, she was expecting the worst. Well, it's her best friend. Yeah. yeah. You know, she was prepared for that not to go well. I'm seriously looking at your face and I'm feeling mine and I'm waiting for us to I know. cry. I'm trying to hold it together. I'm like, stop looking at know, me. Sorry. I'm holding it together. It was, yeah, it was, they, they, the body language was played so beautifully in this scene because as it turns out, she says, I have cancer. What she really means is they're not sure I'm getting a biopsy. Um, right. But in her, those words, by the way, never uttered. Oh, right. Right. <laughs> she has, she has completely gone. I have cancer. And, um, is just sure that that's, what's going to happen. And what gets beautiful to me is what I mentioned at the top of the show, this idea of this, like once in a lifetime, living your life to the fullest. So in the show, she is younger than we are. And there are all these things that she hasn't accomplished that she lists off getting married, having a family, going to Europe, seeing Jerry Lee Lewis in concert. And I don't know if it's just like, age and thinking about all these cool things I've already accomplished, but there is still a lot left I want to accomplish in my life. I don't know if it's coming off a pandemic and thinking about all these even tiny little things. I miss going to concerts. That's something we used to do. It's on my list. That could have something to do with it. I know. I know. So I'm feeling all of this. I'm, I'm going mentally through like, what if I were diagnosed with cancer right now? And what, what would my list look like? And it just, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it cut me deep. Well, we won't make you share your list. Thanks. <laughs> so we'll let you, we do get to maintain some personal items. Um, Good, Cause I haven't I, figured out my whole list. Well, I think that's a journey. Yeah. And, and someone sometimes said the journeys and the getting there or something, <laughs> but gosh, that part takes a long time. Okay. Mary Lou sunshine to my dark deep. <laughs> Your live life to the fullest. My deepest fear was she's sad because she she's not, not sad. she's fearful because I think she she suddenly sees that she may not see those things that she saw for herself. Oh yeah, yeah. You know she may not have children. She may not ever go to Europe. She's never going to see flipping Jerry Lee Lewis in concert really for is. Pete's sake. For Jerry's sake, you know. So, I mean, there's like, I also want to say this is the very first time that I felt like an emotional music cue was warranted. Oh, good call. It was okay. Just a couple more things, because I think this pretty much is it for this particular part before we move on to part two. Um, But, you know... We do all another important part is and why I think she just goes from like zero to 60, like not I have a biopsy, but I have cancer. We we learn in the it, earlier she had two aunts that had cancer. But now she says the I was a punchline, but not funny, which is that both of her aunts died. Right. Yeah. And I wonder now with what you shared at the top is LBT thinking, oh, you know, what's she thinking about right there? Oh, man. Yeah. You know. Um, but you know, this might also be around this scientifically when we're learning about the connection and how it can be, Mm. um, not just environmental, but it can be hereditary Mm -hmm. 
and gene therapy and all of that stuff is probably. Yeah, I definitely read and I don't know the exact timeline on that. I definitely read a few different articles specifically about this episode um, that that got into the fact that breast cancer was not in the common vernacular at this point in time the way that it is today or the way that it was in even like 2000. Um, I see. At this point in time. No Susan G. Coleman. Exactly. At this point in mm-hmm. time, we weren't really talking about it. So this, this was a really big moment for breast cancer on TV. I'm so glad that you looked into that because I was very curious. Like it, it felt like LBT was trying to make a statement here, mm-hmm. right? I mean, well, it's obvious, but like it, it's more than this stuff that's going on and this being like a, a love letter to their mothers. I think this is, um, you know, she, and especially with the scenes that we're all get into here shortly, I like, she is talking loud and clear to the medical community. It is a really beautiful advocacy point and a really nice platform to do it. It's, it's incredibly mm-hmm. brave to take this show that was on the bubble, um, to get it back in your hands and then to spend your first piece of time back on TV to talk about this thing that no one's talking about and to say, we have a problem in the medical community. There's an issue that's incredibly brave and an amazing way to use a platform. So it's a, it's a comedy, it's a silly show, but this is one moment where we're reminded of the power of this show and of TV in general. One might call it quality television and do a letter writing campaign. Indeed. So that's, that's part one. You want to get into part two next? Let's do it. When part two opens back on Charlene's storyline, she's giving away some of her most prized possessions, um, which I think is indicative of how scared she is. Mm -hmm. Um, so she's giving Anthony and all the women something that makes her think of them. So Anthony gets a razorback hat from, um, the time she lived in Arkansas. I think that's an LBT wink. I think you're right. Uh, Julia gets her letter from president Kennedy. She says, because he was always a hero of hers. So it's natural that Julia should get it. Hero hero for her hero. Another hero. Mary Jo gets a framed autographed picture of Elvis. Suzanne gets her grandmother's silver hand mirror. And um, she has a bunch of letters and mementos for her old boyfriend so that she can say goodbye to them. Yeah. Anything in there strike you that you want to comment on? I just kind of want to go back to something now that I think that you hit on really nice at the top, which is like, Charlene's just a good person. And she's really thoughtful. And the reason she gives Suzanne this hand mirror is because she knows that she likes to look at herself. Mm -hmm. And it's like judgment free. Like it's played as a laugh line. But the way that Gene Smart delivers it as Charlene, there's not a hint of judgment in there. Mm -mm, It's 100% innocent and uh, wholeheartedly intended to bring her joy. Yeah. But that's... Are you... That's not my favorite part of this part. Is there a standout for you? I don't know. What's your favorite part? Well, we 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 meet someone, a clothing oh. designer, if you will, <laughs> Calvin Klein. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, a case of Charlene trusting people again. Um, she is one to trust everybody. She, this guy, no one knows, comes in and is helping her bring things into the house, and he 
takes with him toilet paper and paper towels. And I absolutely loved how Julia said, that's what they're there for. <laughs> that's amazing. And, and he's not just any guy. Like, obviously, this guy's had a tough time. Mm, yeah, right. Right. He is um a little disheveled, maybe dirty. I feel like I remember his face having dirt on it or something. Yeah, they, they played him dirty. Okay. He looks like a chimney sweep. Yeah. Well, so and since we're just we're here and I've taken you down this path, I'll just say that I abs- my this is my absolute favorite part of the show, even though it was super random. It's my favorite line of the show, which okay. is, it was so subtle, but it's because it's Anthony. Oh, I know. And <laughs> when when Anthony comes in, um, Calvin Klein, no relation, introduces himself as Calvin Klein and Anthony, he does not miss a beat. And he says, yeah, Brian Gumble, nice to meet you. <laughs> and then he shoots a look to the women that, again, is like almost breaking the fourth wall. Well, it was a real moment of levity in what was otherwise kind of a it wasn't morose, but it was definitely a bittersweet scene watching her give away some of her most prized possessions. It's just really hard. Well, it cuts to a doctor's office and Julia is doing what Julia can do best, which is advocate for the people she loves. She's using her mouthiness for good. And she has gone straight to Dr. Mitchell's office. Mm-hmm. Her superpower, if you will. Right. There you go. If one were a hero, this would be her superpower. Um, so this is an amazingly intense, I've used the word tirade, but I don't even think that's what it is. It is a real moment of kind of bringing doc- Dr. Mitchell to his knees. Um, it was amazingly written. It was amazingly placed. It gave me full body chills. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that I had her poise. I, that's one of those things where you just wish in that moment that you could deliver that language and that like. At one point, she says, and, and we're going to play the clip, she says, um, I'm not emotional, doctor. I'm just plain mad. Mm-hmm. And I wish when I were mad, I sounded as controlled as she does. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird because part of me is like, I was thinking this right before we started um, because I was sort of trying to think back through the episodes. And I, I had this thought, like, if it was anyone else but Dixie Carter, I'd be like, you are overplaying this. Mm-hmm. but it's perfect. It is. It is perfection. Let's let Julia do the talking. Okay. Sounds good. Dr. Mitchell, I'm Julia Sugarbaker. May I come in? Yes, but uh, I hope this won't take long. I'm on the staff of three hospitals and uh, I still have rounds. Oh, I understand how very, very busy you are and I'll be brief. I've come because I'm a close friend of Charlene Fraser's. Uh, Charlene Fraser is no longer my patient, so I can't say. Actually, the reason for I'm this. here not only on Charlene's behalf. I'm here on behalf of all your patients. I don't understand. I have just one question. How many more women are you gonna kill before you retire? I beg your pardon. You see, I've done a little checking on you, Dr. Mitchell. And I've discovered that Charlene is not the first woman you told to wait and see. You said the same thing to another close friend of mine, only at that time I didn't know that you were her physician. Well, she trusted you. She waited four months before her breast had become so misshapen she had to come back. But by then, it was too late. Mrs. Sugarbaker, 
I don't think I would care to discuss with you medical judgments you know nothing about. Medical jargon doesn't impress me. I was brought up in a medical family, and my grandfather always said 80% was common sense. There's nothing mysterious about having a lump in your breast. It's simple. When you find one, you have it x-rayed or biopsied. I know that. Most physicians know that. What I don't understand is why don't you know that? Perhaps I'm of the old school. That's not old school. That's gross incompetence. Well, it's obvious to me that you are an emotional, overwrought woman. Not emotional, doctor. I'm just plain mad. Which is why I'm filing charges against you with the State Medical Bureau and the AMA. Well, if you want to make a fool of yourself, be my guest. But I can assure you, you are in no way qualified to make these judgments. I think this meeting is over. I think so, too. But as for qualified, neither are you. You don't depend on medicine. Your weapon is intimidation. You're a seemingly kind, benevolent authority figure who tells women to let you do their worrying for them. Well, there's just one thing wrong with that, Dr. Mitchell. You don't have to do the dying. Wow, so it's a lot. She said a lot right there. She, she did. And well, and she she held him accountable. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he's someone who's used to be being held accountable. Um, I also noted and thought it might be worth sharing that we see him take a couple of different tacks with her mm-hmm. before she goes into this. Um, and I'm, I'm saying, say tirade, but that doesn't really feel, feel fair before she goes before she goes off. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and this precedes this clip. But basically, first, he tried to tell her that she doesn't understand. She doesn't have a medical degree. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was like, a medical degree. I mean, these are not her words, but she was like, it's common sense. You got a lump in your breast. You take care of it. You make sure you biopsy it. You make sure that it's, you know, not a problem. And, you know, then when he realizes that that's not working and she's too smart for that, Mm -hmm. then he goes down this whole other road where, you know, he tries to pull that emotional woman crap. Right. And, you know, to your point, what did you just say? Mm -hmm. I wish I had that kind of control. Mm -hmm. She's not emotional. She's Mm -hmm. matter of fact. She really is. And it's it's pretty awesome. The whole clip, this whole section just made me really mad. And you won't know this because you haven't seen Golden Girls, but it reminds me of an episode of Golden Girls that was like in one of the later seasons, like season, season five. So it was 1989. So it aired after this did. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the characters, Dorothy, um, is sick and tired. And that's actually the name of the episode. And um, she has just been so tired and so sick. And she goes to her doctor and she says, what's wrong with me? And he basically tells her, you're just getting older. You're just a woman. This is what your bodies do. And it's that male, female dynamic of like, no, 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 this is normal for for you all. Your bodies do this. And she persists. And it turns out she has chronic fatigue syndrome. And again, in a kind of a watershed medical moment, that was one of the first times they've ever talked about chronic fatigue syndrome on TV. Um, And it it still was a few years before that was accepted sort of in the mainstream as a, a, a legitimate medical condition. But 
Hmm. I bring that up because it reminds me of what happens here with Julia. The only thing he does differently is he doesn't accuse her of being too old or of Charlene of aging because she's not. She's an early 30s woman, so that wouldn't hold water. Um, But he definitely plays the like, um, like you said, he takes that first act of you're not you're not smart enough to understand. And then um, you simple woman, you, you let me worry about this, which is what he did with Charlene was sort of like, I'm going to take this away from you and I'm going to own this for you. Um, And the most powerful part actually of the whole scene for me, I think for a lot of people was when Julia says, you do that for them, but you don't do their dying for them. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly right. Um, I think he sees himself as this, you're using the terminology hero to describe some of the other characters. I think as a doctor, he takes that on and that's what he thinks of himself, but really he's not saving anyone. Absolutely. Also, just to, you, we mentioned the bread, I didn't, you did the breadcrumb earlier. Mm-hmm. The friend mentioned at the top who didn't catch it in time. Julia realizes that, I wonder if that's finally the, like the straw right. that broke her back to get her in there. She realizes that the friend, Dr. Mitchell, was their doctor too. Mm, probably. probably. So, it, you know, he, she, he'd already put Charlene through the ringer. He was the reason her other really good friend died and she's had enough. So then after that, the episode takes us back to the hospital. Um, I'm not necessarily going um, exactly how it happens because we'll cover some of the other things that happen in between later, but um, takes us back to the hospital with the women, JD and Anthony visiting, visiting with Charlene. Um, so they all return her stuff because as it turns out, um, it's, it's non-malignant. It's not cancer. She's not going to die. Um, she also has a little bit of a surprise. She gets a telegram. So now we got some telegram. Darn telegrams. They're just flying around left and right in the 80s. Yeah. It's from Jerry Lee Lewis. He says, I think it said, I was there. Where were you? Mm-hmm. Um, I think Mary Jo has coordinated this for him. Maybe JD helped um, so that uh, Charlene would get some semblance of her dream. But they are also going to take her to Macon to see him in a few weeks. Macon is in Georgia. Right. Just one of my Southern references. Uh, yeah. So uh, then they have this really nice sort of like the, the end of the episode coming together moment. Um, and then I mentioned at the very beginning that this episode was dedicated to LBT's mother-in-law and also her own mother. Um, so it definitely uh, runs close to home. And then there were just some really cute one-liners um, throughout even this kind of plot line. I really thought it was funny how Suzanne, uh, it, when they're, she's handing out all these gifts and Mary Jo says, but what happens if when you're fine, what are we going to do? And Suzanne says, do we have to give them all back? Everybody <laughs> looks at her like, well, of course we do. Uh, but it was just, it's, I really appreciated how they took this really heavy thing and wove in those other kind of cute things. I appreciated that. So do you want to move into Mary Jo and JD? The Battle of the X's? Let's move into the Battle of these X's. Nikki, you've sort of already set this one up for us, so thank you for doing that at the top. I did um, accidentally omit the title of the overall episodes for 12 and 13. Oh, uh uh-huh. It's Old Spouses Never Die, um, which doesn't really tell us anything but about Mary Jo's um, plot line, which is interesting. And that's why I think this episode wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. It surprised me. It's misleading. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So I think um, in that scene with Charlene, though, at the beginning, we get this setup of this struggle between Mary Jo and Ted because they're going through a little through a little something as I mean, they ha- they've been divorced a while, but those issues, they never go away when you have kids in the middle. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're going through some a little bit of what I might call the custody shuffle. And part of that is that it's it's not just fair and equal time, but it's also two sets of rules. Mm-hmm. And that's what Mary Jo is really kind of lamenting about um, that, you know, I think Ted has a lot of guilt over the divorce and he's letting the kids do whatever they want. And it's not bringing out the greatest side in the kids either. And then it's causing friction when they're home with her and I don't know. I thought some of this was really interesting here because um, she sort of says like she says that Ted looks at her the last time he dropped off the kids and he says, you better watch out. You might just turn into an unfit mother. But there wasn't really predicated on anything. Mm -hmm. I think maybe this is some jealousy. Mm -hmm. And him feeling threatened by the fact that there's actually another person in her life right now. Yes, I think that's it. I think that has a lot to do with it. But she's really scared because Ted's a doctor. He has lots of money. And if he wanted to raise a stink, he could. Mm-hmm. Um, and, my, you know, it's it's still not easy for fathers to get custody. I think that was even more the case in the 80s. But I think money somehow always changes things. I've heard money talks. Something like that. Something else walks. I forget. So um, Mary Jo walks. I don't know. So uh, talks, walks and gets you custody of your kids. That's it. That's what it is. That's it. Um, And so I think, you know, they they have this whole interaction. Charlene and Mary Jo do. I I don't want to live here because we've already talked about that. You know, her really wanting to be supportive. But as they're talking, a really important thing comes out, which is that Mary Jo and JD have not had sex yet. Right. So, uh, you know, that scene. And I bring that up now because that is going to factor in to the rest of this part. Mm -hmm. I think that's really the the most important thing that we learn in this first conversation that sets up um, this friction with Ted. But was there anything else that hit you in this first scene? I think you got it. Okay. Why don't we just go ahead and tell the people? Okay. We didn't love this part. (laughs) Let's just say it. We didn't love it. Uh, I didn't. No, it was a little bit of a, it was a filler storyline to me. But this next part with uh, Mary Jo meeting JD's ex-wife, there's actually some funny stuff that happens here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just getting straight to it. All the women uh, at Sugar Bakers are chatting about what's going on with Mary Jo's relationship. And uh, it, you know, in true sitcom fashion, Mary Jo is sitting there talking about his ex-wife, uh, whose name is Janet, and she's been no treat we know from past and we know from past episodes that, you know, she's calling JD all the time for help Mm -hmm. for things that she could figure out on her own. You know, she's made it very clear. She wants to get back together. And so Mary Jo says she hopes she never runs into her because she might just have to give her a piece of her mind. And in typical 80s fashion, a woman walks in the door. Who is it? Who is it? Who could it be? (laughs) 
my lord, it's Janet, you know. Oh, my stars, Janet. I mean, not even like a scene from then, just like literally two seconds later. Yeah. She, it's like she called her out of thin air, mm-hmm. you know. But here, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and say the line. This is what happens when she comes in because they say something along the lines, can I help you? And she goes, yeah, I just want to know which one of you bitches is Mary Jo Shively. Uh, we get a funny part here. Were you allowed to say bitches on TV back then, Selena? Nikki, I will point you to episode two, Extra Sugar. <clears throat> Inconclusive. But they're saying it, so. There you go. Must be yeah. okay. Um, but the great thing here is, is after she comes in with that line, they all point to Mary Jo and go, she is. They sell her out so fast, don't they? Oh, I Anthony mean, Thanksgiving all over again. It is. And there is zero hesitation. And then and then Janet proceeds to go off. She's trying to fix her broken marriage. You know, she needs um, she needs Mary Jo to go back to her ex-husband. You know, she's she's trying to pick up the broken pieces of her marriage. And Mary Jo is the thing that's standing in the way of that happening. And she she kind of basically I she threatens her a little bit. It's aggressive aggressive. and then i think she does the meanest thing that you can do to a woman because we are so taught to rely upon our looks um even when we don't mean to even when we are very aware of the way we look we just still don't need people telling us about it mm-hmm. and she she says that jd isn't always really good on his descriptions this isn't exactly what she says but basically that he was right in this case she is just average so messed up but Mary Jo is stunned. She says nothing. She drops to the floor very dramatically. This is where me and Mary Jo line up again. I could see me doing something like this. She drops to the floor. I mean, head on the ground. <laughs> she is upset. And Suzanne, in perfect comedy fashion, says, well, I guess you told her. Oh, gosh, that was so funny. And that's where we end that particular scene Moving on, we have this whole thing that happens between JD and Mary Jo. They sort of have like an after action report of everything that happened between uh, Mary Jo and Janet. You know, JD's like standing up for her, which probably wasn't the best idea. Um, she's taking an assertiveness training, so that's probably what's really going on. <laughs> I'm not a professional. I don't think that's probably in the handbook <laughs> to walk in and curse someone out. So, be. well, I guess it depends on who the trainer is. So I don't know. Um, I think Mary Jo is feeling is feeling low because she she just basically says like she doesn't use these words, but she's making Janet is making it seem like they're cheating. Right. Like they're still married, but they're divorced. Right. She made her feel like the other woman, which is probably not a great feeling. Yeah. I think, you know, we said that we didn't want to spend forever here. So I'll just say that I feel like we see them get vulnerable with each other here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, JD, he, he's very pointed that him and his ex-wife did not have the same dreams. That was not working. He is not revisiting that, you know. Um, but this whole thing comes up to about this average looking comment. Mm-hmm. And I think he's just trying to make her feel better, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't, and I don't think, I don't think men are really always very good in this area. 
it's a struggle and we don't make it easy. We really right. don't. So, right. I guess I shouldn't speak for all women, but I will say I don't always make it easy. Right. <laughs> um, but it, you know, it takes a minute, but he does finally make her feel better. He has a line where he says, you think I'm spending all this time with you for your mind? How'd that make you feel? I, this all, this entire storyline, I don't love JD and I understand that we are supposed to love him. Um, it, it, from what I understand, he becomes a little bit maybe of a mainstay of the show. We've talked about how Gene Smart was married to him in real life. So I'm having to separate like real him from character him. I don't think he treats Mary Jo all that well. I think you, you just said like he takes up for his ex-wife, which he does, which just feels like, I think not the best tact is a nice way of saying it. Like all the things that she's, she's done, he gives her way too much credit and to do it in front of Mary Jo, who is clearly not the most self-confident person just feels cruel in a way. Like it just doesn't feel nice. And then this whole sex kind of thing hanging over their relationship. Um, he feels a little like he's using, I, he says it's not a threat at one point, but it very much feels like a threat to their relationship that if she's not willing to kind of take that step, that next step, then, then he's just not sure where this is going. And it just, this all, this whole subplot left me feeling uneasy about JD. Yeah. And it's hard because I understand that that's a very important part of a relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, but it does come off as callous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I don't I don't love it. And things don't end well that night. Right. Not really. He basically says, you know, it's time. And she's still like she's in her head and there Ted's gonna be back soon with the kids. She's got real things. I think the other thing that just sort of strikes me is like, this is what it looks like when you have a relationship when you're when you're older. Mm -hmm. You come with emotional baggage, you come with children. You come with life experience and you don't get necessarily that same honeymoon phase that other people do because your responsibilities are different and your life looks different. Right. So I think what makes me mad though, again, to go back to the gender imbalance we talked about when we talked about the doctor scene, she has to worry about all those things. She's a single mom. The standards are different for her. She goes on a date with a man. Suddenly she's an unfit mother. He is at her house with, um, Janet blaming Mary Jo for everything and not mad at him about what's going on. Right. So that is just really grating on me that we're, we're watching this play out on TV and it's real. I mean, that's, that's really what happens. You know, a single mom is held to a different standard than a single dad is oftentimes. And they do talk about that. And, and, uh, before Janet comes in, they talk about that double standard, Mary, you know, women are just supposed to be moms mm -hmm. and men can just, you know, they can do whatever they're men. They're men. They yeah. Penis life is great. It makes me mad. Cause I want JD to be better than that. And I want him to feel some of the same things she's feeling, I think. It's it's tough for me because I get these really bright, shining moments from him. And there's something that's just, I think he's got a lot of great charisma. And then like in the next second, he feels a little bit like a bully. Mm -hmm. It's challenging. Mm -hmm. um, so we exit out of that scene. It's like the next day. Julia 
gives Mary Jo some advice basically on being intimate with another, another man. Mary Jo is trying to figure out, is it time? Like, is, you know, is it, is it time for us to take that next step? And basically Julia says if, if she loves JD and he means something to her, then it's probably time to take the lid off the cookie jar or something like that, mm, which feels like I'm like, mm, yeah, cookies. <laughs> I'm like, that sounds delicious and wonderful. Um, the next time we come back to Mary Jo's plot line, she's back with JD again. This is a little tough because uh, just to kind of bring back in the other plot point, by now she's learned that Charlene is going in for this biopsy. They've had that really upsetting conversation. I think she's emotionally drained. She's just not ready for this. And she like the whole point of them getting together is this is supposed to be a sexy evening. Right. And it is anything, but she ain't ready for all this. You know, I mean, when she takes off and she has like a, I don't know, it's a, it's, I mean, it is a nighty, but it's like, I don't know. It's, um, uh, it's, it's not Victoria's Secret. It's not, it's not Fredericks of Hollywood. And then I don't know if you noticed or not, but she had pink fuzzy slippers on. Did you notice that? Oh, I didn't notice that. I was, when I looked at her outfit, it reminded me of something, um, that show Westworld where they have, um, the, the women in the wild West who work in, in like the brothel. It reminded Mm -hmm. me of something they would wear. That's so funny. Cause I was thinking like country. Yes. Yeah. Like, like I could like it, it would, it would be a sexy day outfit. Yes. <laughs> like, uh, or you know how they'll have you dress up in the, you take the old timey portraits. Yeah, exactly. And you kind of see her with like a little, <laughs> little pistol. Lanny. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's in like the sepia tones. <laughs> yeah. So it's that, but she's wearing pink fuzzy slippers. I and I got to tell you, adorable. she it's, it's adorable, but she ain't ready. She ain't sure. ready to get it on. And she's got her pink fuzzies on. I did love in this scene how business-like it was. This is the one where he says, um, she says, so you want to do it upstairs or downstairs? And he goes, I don't really remember what I put on my application. (laughs) Yeah, but he's still, like, okay with it. You could tell he was, like, kind of, like, annoyed by that, but also, like, are we going to do it? Or this, right? (laughs) Right. Like, I've I've invested four months now, and (laughs) it's like a punch card at, like, the subway. Trying to get that sandwich. <laughs> Here it comes out. She has not been with anyone but Ted. Mm-hmm. I think maybe we've heard that before, but it's the first time that JD's hearing it. Mm-hmm. And that's what this was really about. It's And it's not just that piece, but it's also that she sat at home and he came home being with other women many nights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that hasn't left her. And I think he starts to get it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it seems like those insecurities are easing. It seems like the night's being salvaged. I think we're about to have a red scarlet moment. He's about to toss her over his shoulder and then the doorbell rings. And it's Ted. And basically, um, we learned this at the top in the description. He's there on some flimsy excuse. It doesn't matter. I will tell you the thing that stuck out for me here is that Ted goes and answers the phone when it rings. What was that about? That's him pissing yeah. on the territory of his uh, used to be home. Right. You know, so we know exactly what that's about. But obviously, you know that this is sort of kind of intensifying the situation. Mm-hmm. Then it's worse news because it's Janet on the phone. Mm-hmm. 
you know, no one has any boundaries. So we're all obviously having some, some problems here. And then, um, and, and, and there's a, there's a, the bathroom's flooded. JD's got to get over there and fix it. Makes no sense. Call a plumber. Right. Uh, Mary Jo says as much. I think she actually says liquid plumber or something. Um, and then we end this particular scene with Mary Jo and JD in a fight. And I think this is probably one of those parts that struck you in a weird way, because it certainly did me as he was heading out. And when she's basically like, he was already leaving, but when she kicks him out is because he says, um, you know, maybe if Ted stays around long enough, he'll get lucky. That's so messed up. That was a little yeah. low. Right. So it's not, I mean, it. it's like, it's like two, two males having a pissing contest. And it's sort of like, is Mary Jo the prize here? Mm. Mm, or is it just this territorial thing? Mm. And then it's also like, it keeps coming back around to, to sex mm -hmm. with Ted. And I, and oop, <laughs> the other one, the other. it keeps coming back around to sex with JD. And I think that just gets frustrating as a viewer. Yeah, it really does. It really yeah. does. Especially when you're, I, I don't, you kind of want to hold them to a higher standard because they do have life experience and they do presumably know what a quality, uh, productive relationship can be and that it doesn't have to, sex doesn't have to be the end game. There can be so much more to it. And it just feels like that's his end game, which to me feels like a 17 year old boy. We get to our final scene with this. The meeting of the exes is what I'm calling this last one. And basically, J.D. and Mary Jo, even though they're not getting along that well in the moment, they call over Janet and Ted. I think we get a little bit of a saving grace here. Ted is very, like, he's very stern. In the, in, not stern with Mary Jo, but stern um, with Ted and also stern with his own ex-wife. You mean that, J. like J.D.? Did I, yeah. did I do it again? Okay. Okay, but JD is get he's very stern and he he lets them know like what's been going on that can't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. We also get him saying that him and Mary Joe and he tells this to their exes, they're intending to build a life together. The look on her face says this is the first time she's heard that. Mm. To me. Mm -hmm. And then um you know, he puts up some boundaries. They wish them well. Personal lives, none of their business. Phone calls are for the following. Death, loss of blood, excessive vomiting. Is that That's also your stance on phone calls too, right? <laughs> my stance on phone calls in general. It's my stance on phone calls from the family while we're podcasting. Yes. And then <laughs> I take all phone calls during this. <laughs> um, and then I'm just going to say that uh, JD's finally going to get some. That's how we wrap up this scene. And for better or worse, I know we've had a lot of conversations about like, we're not exactly happy with him, but she literally does call him her hero. Yeah. And he is in this moment, the hero, I think of this because he does all the talking. We could unpack that for another hour and a half. But what do you say that we go ahead and move on to our final plot line? Mr. Anthony Bouvier. Let's do it. So for our final theme for this episode, we get into probably the most lighthearted, if you can call potential murder and extortion lighthearted, uh, but Anthony's involved. So it is pretty lighthearted compared to some of the other things happening in the episode. We get into um, a little bit of a situation that Anthony has found himself in. 
it's a little bit of hot water, I would say. Mm. Um, and what's interesting about this one is it actually takes several scenes of the show for him to even come into play. Um, but it turns out he's probably going to have to relocate <laughs> to a whole nother planet <laughs> because he needs $5,000 and he does not have $5,000. Uh, but he has gotten himself in, um, in with some, they call them thugs. Um, and just some, it sounds like some bad guys. His name's Mr. BB. He's the slacks king of the South. Uh, he, Anthony found himself in Memphis um, to go to the dog races. And he's in with Mr. BB and his crowd. And a woman named Juanita takes a liking to him. But unfortunately, Juanita is Mr. BB's girlfriend. And he did not know that. So because of all of this, he's found himself in some hot water with Mr. BB. Mr. BB says, you have to join my poker game this weekend. The buy-in is $5,000. And... So the women kind of press him on this. They're like, what, why $5,000? And he says, we can't call it extortion. Mm -hmm. So he's making me play this poker game. Um, so his first plan is to tell Mr. BB, um, to have someone else tell Mr. BB that Anthony was killed. <laughs> Seems foolproof, right? Well, he's putting his banking cap on for sure. Super watertight. Um, because his, his logic is that Mr. BB is really dumb. He's a dumb, rich person. And he goes to Hawaii every year for three months, it sounds like. And he's convinced that if he tells him, if he has someone tell him he's dead, he'll go to Hawaii and forget all about Anthony. I think I could forget about someone while I was on vacation. Well, I'm all hung up on like, can I be Mr. BB? Uh, well, sure. Right, right, right. Sure. That's a good point. Um, but it's at this point that Anthony really makes it clear to the women that he really wants to be done with his unjustly accused days. He wants to move on. <laughs> Um, I think I mentioned this earlier at the beginning when we talked about themes throughout the episode, but this is where we really get to talk about what Anthony wants out of life. He alluded to this in one of the first times we ever met him. The man just wants to go to college. Mm -hmm. He wants to go to junior college. He wants one of those fancy button down sweaters. He wants to join the pep club. I love it. I love it when we get these little snapshots. So wholesome. Mm -hmm. I loved everything about it. Um, yeah, I absolutely loved that. I loved everything that was happening there. It's at this point that Charlene comes in and announces that she doesn't have cancer that first time mm. where we know that she was basically just told, don't, don't worry about it. Um, and then she gives the messages to Anthony. He had some phone messages and they were real descriptive. You're dead meat. You're dead meat, man. Be there or you're dead meat. So then she looks at him and says, big weekend. <laughs> love that mm -hmm. so so all of that happens um and then i think then is there anything more you want to say about that sort of setup of his his troubles lady that was super thorough so i think <laughs> i think that's i think that's everything um yeah that's all the stuff so i think it's here but i might have it out of order um Suzanne has a really funny monologue. Selena's taking notes to tell me if I've been out of order. <laughs> Selena, uh, not Selena, Suzanne, ends up taking a phone call from Mr. BB's men. Um, and Selena, do you have an impression here that you would like to do? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not going to be good now, but <laughs> I did this for Nikki the other day randomly out of nowhere. It's perfect. She didn't ask for it. Have five thousand dollars. He's gonna join the club. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. 
So that's that. She takes care of Anthony's problem. She says, you're not going to hear from those guys anymore. This is our unexpected hero. There you go. There you go. I would argue I've always expected Suzanne to be a hero, but you can call her unexpected if you will. Oh, that I'm sorry. Yeah, I think she's a she's a delight. Uh, so that takes us out of part one and into part two, episode 13, uh, where Anthony is still being tormented by Mr. BB's bodyguards. They've, in fact, graffitied the side of sugar bakers with your dead meat. And meat is not spelled properly, which a fact which Mr. Calvin Klein points out. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of moving along in this storyline, um, Anthony finds himself in the hospital keeping Charlene company. And thanks to the unexpected hero, Suzanne, the bodyguards are able to track down Anthony at the hospital because they told her they were his cousins looking for him. So I guess she just told him, told them he's at the hospital. Go find him over there. Um, so they track him down there and he has to, he has to think quick. Um, he pretends to be a patient with kidney stones. I've got something in parentheses here that says, Oh, Lucy, you got some splaining to do. That's what it felt like to me. It felt like that was such a silly, like you've got these two men that have no qualms about killing you and you tell them you have kidney stones. Or just leave. Just gonna be like, he had time to right. get naked. Naked. Right. <laughs> That's how Selena really says naked. Uh, yeah, there were just so many things. There's so many things he could have done. And he t- decides that his way out of this is to tell him he has kidney stones and just hope they take pity on him. Um, so the nurse walks in and Anthony has threatened to call hospital security. The nurse walks in, kind of spooks the guys and they leave. But they say, when we get back for Hawaii from Hawaii, we're going to find you. Um, and Anthony says, when you get back from Hawaii, I'm going to be a white guy named her. Yep. (laughs) The way he says it too is like glorious. If you guys aren't following along, please watch that. It's, it's hilarious. He also had another really funny line here where he tells the nurse, like, why don't they put Velcro on the back of hospital gowns? And I'm like, seriously, why don't they? Where, where are our heads? I don't, well, I can tell you they're in the back of the hospital gown. Well, and they always tell you to flip it around to the front. There's just two strings, you know, I'm like, okay. I mean, this is not, this is not doable for me personally. Uh, right. So the men leave and, um, in the final scene of the show, when they're all sort of standing around Charlene's bed, um, Anthony reveals that he stood up to Mr. BB. He went double or nothing on a card game and he won. He says that he told Mr. BB he doesn't owe him $5,000. He doesn't have $5,000. And if he has a problem with that, he can take it up his hide. Um, so again, they played a card game. Anthony won. All was well. I have to ask you, Selena, do you think that's true? Oh, that that happened? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I thought he made that up to cover for the fact, because he's... I guess it's possible he had a change of heart and went to talk to Mr. BB, but where we last saw things, that's not at all what happened. And my instinct every time I watched it was that that's not true, that that is a flimsy excuse he made. So the women would leave him alone. Well, but they didn't really seem to care. Well, they told him good job, <laughs> but I don't even, I mean, did they even ask him? I mean, I guess they did. I don't know. I just, you just blew my mind. Cause I didn't even think that that could, possibly not be true i actually my the whole thing that i thought was not true in the episode was the telegram from jerry lee lewis 
Oh, yeah. I wondered about that, too, but I'm I'm going. Oh, maybe it's all lies in the last scene. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe oh. he didn't no, actually say that. What now? Because then Charlene would have cancer. Not that lie. Oh, just okay. the hers would be the Jerry Lee Lewis telegram. OK. Mary Jo and J.D. would have not actually had sex. And for this line, it would be what you said, which is that, like, he never really stood up to Mr. Beebe scene. So I'm curious if Mr. Beebe's ever coming back. This was a uh, one of the major plot lines of the story, but there wasn't that much content with Anthony's. Not really. No, like I said, I mean, he didn't even come in till a couple of scenes in. It's pretty straightforward. Like, he's got himself in hot water. Now he's got to find his way out of it. Um, there really wasn't that much. So there's not that much to say. Yeah. Anthony is a darn delight. I want to see him in the pep club. Me too. And I think, but I just want to say, because it might look disproportionate how much time we spent on each, but if you watch the episode, it's just, it's spread out over the full two episodes, but it's not a lot. So it's probably like seven minutes of content. Yeah, it really is very, very short. Yeah. But enough to show you a lot about Anthony and to kind of continue building this character um, as someone who had an unfortunate past and is bound and determined to have a brighter future, which is something I'm continuing to root for him. Yeah, I think I think he's going to I think he's going to be our standout. But I mean, obviously, I have a huge bias because <laughs> I love him with the depths of my soul. Nikki, you know what time it is. Are you ready to rate this sucker? Mm -hmm. All right. I am. Are we going to talk rating scale? Uh, let's surprise each other. Okay. Kick it off. You want to surprise each other? You look like you don't. No, I do. I do. Um, my grading scale is barehanded pig wrestling matches. Oh. I give this one a four out of five. Oh, four wow. Five. I almost gave it a five out of five. Wow. The first time I watched this episode, I said there was a disconnect between the title and the show itself. And it just was not at all what I was expecting. I think I was actually expecting something heavier than this. I was expecting a Reese recently widowed thing to do with Julia. Uh, some, maybe like a death of someone, somebody like I was expecting something different than what we got, but I was unnerved by Charlene's scare because I have grown to fall in love with her. And I just really, really care about her. Yeah. Um, I absolutely loved Suzanne in this episode. I feel like she had some really funny, even though she was not a huge part of the episode where she was, she was very funny, just a delight. I loved Charlene finally getting to say, that's not the point. I just loved the way she delivered that. Oh yeah. Um, that's funny. I am a total sucker for a life or death storyline. That just, that hits me every time. Um, I got weepy a few times. Uh, I could have left that storyline with Anthony. I, I loved having Anthony there. I just wish he could have had something either more substantial or different. Um, and like we said, the deal with the exes was boring to me. Um, but I think Charlene's situation was really well handled. And those other pieces tied together, bringing in the rest of the cast and made the show something uh, a little more full than it would have been if it had been all about Charlene. Um, but that was just such a well done storyline. So I really liked this. Oh, that's nice. I mean, I think if we were grading individual storylines, like Charlene's would have been a four or five for me. I think mm -hmm. some of the other stuff kind of brought it down for me. My scale was um, Bryant Gumbel's. 
<laughs> and so I gave it three out of five Bryant Gumbles. Um, you know, I think it had high highs and I think it had low lows, which is pretty much what you were saying, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the high highs for me was I'm serious, Anthony introducing himself as Brian Gumble. This is the most amount of times I've ever seen said this man's name in my entire life. <laughs> um, but without skipping a beat and that look that he did, that was a high high for me. Suzanne telling off the bodyguard guys on the phone, high high for me. Super funny. So good. Julia taking that doctor down a few pegs. I mean, absolute perfection. And Charlene's wondering this, wondering that monologue that we're going to cover in extra sugar. Um, that, uh, you know, in case 96 minutes isn't enough for you. Um, that really also got me to and was a high, high. Lolo's uh, conflicted about JD. Um, I love the, you know, he wants to build a life with her. I think it was, I think it was getting better towards the end. I think the fact that what he did, he was obviously a part of this stuff with Jerry Lee Lewis and the concert tickets and taking Charlene. And I think showing an interest in her is really supportive of Mary Jo, but less crazy about his reaction to things with Ted, his emphasis on, you know, um, the whole sex piece. Um, it's really just the way again, like I understand that people need to have sex. That's fine. It's just, it was the way he was treating Mary Jo was not fair. And then, um, his impatience was not fair. And, um, Anthony jumping in that hospital bed, like I said, I was all, I love Lucy on that. I love Lucy. (laughs) Who doesn't? Yeah. But I don't, I don't want to see Lucy in designing women. Like, you know, I want to. Vita Benjamin, you know, I don't want to see that with these guys. I want to see something different. Um, So, you know, I also felt like this whole thing we talked about at the beginning was this was their return. And in some ways, I didn't think the payoff was there for a two-parter where we were supposed to be like glued to our TVs, because that's what I think of when I think of that. Um, I was because I wanted to know if my girlfriend was going to be okay. And I mean, and I think that part kind of got more, have more legs to that. But also, I, I think it would be really hard to believe that we would make our, I mean, you could make the main character sick, but we're thinking towards the not being on the show anymore. And that's hard to believe half of a season of one season in. So I think it was just a little tough for me. Um, but I've really enjoyed talking about it and I really, really, really enjoyed unpacking Charlene's um, uh, part of the show in the, in these two episodes. And I will give that a five out of five. Yeah, definitely. So uh, did you have anything that was a combination of either 80 Southern or unknown references? Not a combination. Okay. Oh, what did you have in the eighties front? Telegram. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. That's it? Okay. All well, right. You're I, mean, re- I think there were other things. I'm always bad about catching these. No, no, no. No, no. There's no, there's no right. There's no wrong. There's no good and bad. There's only me and you, kid. I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. Here's my list. And uh, let me let's just roll through them. Uh, waiting for checks to come in the mail. Uh, that obviously didn't just happen in the eighties. And I know people still have that happen, but it just feels direct deposit, man. I don't know what to say. 
department stores. Um, just feels like antiquated today. They're scary if you go in them today. Like you could hear a pin drop on carpet. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's no one there. It's very frightening. And that's that was pre-pandemic. Um this idea of what is essentially a Maytag man, I think that was like still in existence then. Um if you don't know what a Maytag man is, a Maytag man was someone who literally came and serviced Maytags. <laughs> so not really a thing we see anymore. We get a mention of Rambo. This is what Mary Jo calls Janet's assertiveness training. That must be the trainer. Um, the reference to Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. Today, I think we get a Harry and Meghan reference or at least Charles and Camilla. Um, it, you know, Also, just to note that Prince Philip passed away not very long ago. So um, that's sad. So uh, cassette tapes. Um, receiving phone calls on a landline at someone else's house. Uh, Calvin Klein. I know he's still around. I'm just saying 80s was his head heyday. Uh, nothing gets between me and my Calvins. You know, Brooke Shields. No, you're not from... Okay. And then, uh-huh. You guys, I just... Sometimes I'm, sometime I'm just going to film... I'm going to video... I'm going to film. I'm getting back to the 80s. Nikki just giving me the stare of... Move on. Bryant Gumble is on my 80s list. Okay, oh, yeah. And then calling pants slacks. Mm. I was still like wondering, like, do some people maybe not know what slacks are? <laughs> I just don't hear that term a lot. So I thought that was interesting. That was my list. That was a list, man. I didn't have any of that. Well, it was a, it was a two-parter. I had, I had Southern things. I was listening for the Southern things. Lay it on me. I had Mighty Fine, how JD described Mary Jo. Actually, uh, Memphis, which is in Tennessee. Oh, hello. Uh, the Arkansas Razorbacks, Elvis, mm-hmm. and Macon, which is a city in Georgia. See, you had a much longer list there, and I have Macon. So <laughs> I was grasping for straws a little bit. I those were all Southern things, and the longest Southern list we've had in a million episodes. It's been a minute, yeah. Um. I thought Macon was a really interesting pick. Yeah. Only because that feels deeply Southern for 87. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be hard pressed to think someone outside of Georgia knows where Macon is. Yeah. Now. Yeah. They probably could have picked like Nashville or something like that. Another, I was thinking they were trying to pick another close by city, um, but Nashville wouldn't have been that long of a drive. Yeah. Um, references that you had to look up anything? This was really light on the cultural references. The The only one I had to look up was Mac the Knife. So that was the only one you had to look up? Mm-hmm. Um, I had to look up Chinese dogs. That's what Anthony was supposed to be getting when he was like late at the big. Be- oh, okay. I was like, what is that? And it's look, it looks like something I, I you they're called Chinese food dog okay. statues. Oh, uh, maybe we can share a picture of them or something. Um, I like, they, they do look familiar and look like something I've seen going in like a Chinese restaurant. Um, but I've, uh, I did not know what that was on that reference. Looks familiar, right? Yeah. Leading you through Nikki's on her phone right now. Googling. Um, and then I looked up, um, BB Arkansas is a real place. So Mr. BB. Um, oh, okay. 
it is a tiny place and, and, and there's not a lot going on in the news. That's what I'll tell you. So that was it for me. And anything else that you had outstanding? Nope, that was it. And I think that about wraps us up on episodes 12 and 13. I keep getting the numbers wrong. 12 and 13. Uh, next time, episode 14, Monette. <laughs> I'm excited. Um, as always, we'd love for everyone to follow along with us and engage on our social media accounts. We are at Sweet Tea and TV on both Instagram and Facebook. Uh, you can email us at sweetteatvpod at gmail.com. You can find our website where we put our show notes um, and some of these links that we reference throughout the show at www.sweetteatv.com. And I do want to put in a plug here, Selena, hmm. that one of the easiest ways that people can help us out on this podcast dream come true project that we're working on is to share with their friends and family. If you know someone who is just looking for a new podcast to listen to, um, tell people about our show. Just tell them. Um, we are on social media. We'd love to have people engage. Share us with your friends. We'd also love if folks could rate us and review us wherever they're listening to our podcast. So I wanted to put that, that gentle plug in this time. Love it. Well, next time. Episode 14. So I guess we'll see you around the bend. Bye. Well, Nikki, it's that time. It's that time for Extra Sugar. And this week, we're going to answer all the things that Charlene was wondering at the top of the episode when all the gals are having lunch. Does that sound okay? That sounds great. She was wondering about some things that I wonder about and some things I never knew to wonder about. Yeah, we're going to skip a couple of the questions because that would give us a really interesting Google history. <laughs> so um, we'll jump into the safe for work ones. Yeah. So here's what we're going to do, folks. Folksy folks. Nikki's going to share the question. I'm going to answer the question. And we have freed up your Google hand. I don't know. Mm. Do with that what you will or don't. And please don't ever tell us about your Google hands. Yeah, let's move past Google hands. Sleep. <laughs> oh. You ready? I'm ready. Queen Elizabeth's purse. What's in it? In her purse is a mirror, lipstick, mint lozenges. That's what they called them. I don't know what to tell you. And reading glasses. The purse also signals things to her staff. So if she wants them to get her out of an uncomfortable situation, she holds her purse at a certain angle. Boom. Oh. Selena, what do the words to Mac the Knife mean? Mac the Knife was a song sang by Bobby Darren in the 50s. I might be getting the year wrong there. Look, we got an article and I'll share that with you. Nikki, do you know what the years were? No. Okay. So it was a while ago, but here's the thing. Oh, it was the 50s, 1959, but that's not actually where it started. It was initially written for a 1928 German play, hit number one in the U.S. in 1959 when sang by Mr. Darren. And it's actually about a murderer. Here's the twist. It's to a really upbeat tempo. So you're sitting there singing this song, but he's talking about this guy killing a bunch of people and they're just laying in their scarlet red blood. 
but it's oh, peppy. My. So there you go. That's too much for me. Do you know how they make the cat dance on that cat commercial? Well, okay. So here's the thing. That's a broad. There's a lot of cat commercials out there. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, but I did track down a Purina Chow 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 cat food commercial from 1975. Um, it looks like a simple editing trick. Basically think an early boomerang. Huh. I can think that. Yes. And Selena, I'm not a huge coleslaw fan, but I, like Charlene, do often wonder, who was Cole? I did look up a little bit about the history of coleslaw. I also am not a huge coleslaw fan, unless you do dill pickles in it. Don't be putting that sweet pickle nonsense in there. Sweet pickles. It's not for me either, which feels against our southern roots. Bread and butter feels southern. Anyways, this ain't the point. My bad. So That's here's the not thing. not the point, Selena. <laughs> and you feel good because you got to say it. I always wanted to uh, say it. Right. If you guys don't know what we're talking about, it's because it's in the episode. Um, the term coleslaw originates from the Dutch expression kuzla, which means cabbage salad. Is that it? That's it. Oh. But we missed a question. Uh-oh. What did we miss? Well, she was also wondering if Prince Philip just ever reaches over, grabs Queen Elizabeth, and starts right. tickling her. You're right. Right, right, right. Well, here's my answer. I didn't Google this one, but I know they have four kids, so I'm guessing he often reached over and did something. Oh, my. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Bump! 